Mask is the god of thievery and thieves in the Forgotten Realms. Mask and his faith value one's ability to be sly, evasive, and stealthy. Practicing and supporting thievery throughout the many locales of Faerun. I am Ben Dignan, and welcome once again to Religion in the Realms. Titles The different titles masks go by are Master of All Thieves, Lord of Shadows, and Shadow Lord. According to the Prayers from the Faithful, 2nd edition source book at least, Mask has two secret names, Veldreos and Ondoom, though these names did not come up elsewhere in my research. Portfolio and Domains Prior to the Time of Troubles, Mask held the following portfolios, Shadows, Thievery, Thieves, and Intrigue. Following the Time of Troubles, Mask lost the Intrigue portfolio to Siric as a result of the Serenishad incident, which I will describe later. In 3rd edition, his portfolios were Shadows, Thievery, and Thieves. In 5th edition, we don't get the deity's portfolios ever written out. But if you read Mask's entry in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide, it would appear that Mask has the portfolio of intrigue back in his possession. Quote, People whisper a prayer to Mask whenever stealth is required or intrigue is afoot. Courtiers and diplomats invoke the god's name in hopes of a smooth negotiation. End quote. Now I could just be inferring too much from just two sentences, but then again, the second centering did create some drastic changes. Appearance and Manifestations Supposedly, Mask's true form has yet to be seen by anyone. He ensures that his appearance shifts constantly. Mask's favored weapon is a magic longsword he calls Stealth Whisper. He also has another longsword he carries known as Shadow Blade. These two longswords mechanically, in 3rd edition terms, are plus 4 longswords with the Frost, Keen, and Speed qualities. In 2nd edition, Stealth Whisper is described differently. It is mentioned to be capable of shrinking and growing in size to form a variety of different sized blades, from that of a dagger to that of a two-handed greatsword, though Stealth Whisper always does damage as a longsword despite its physical form. This black blade makes no sound when swung and reflects no light. Stealth Whisper functions as a sword of quickness and a sword of wounding. Finally, it deals 7 times the normal amount of damage for a backstab attack. Mask's most often seen avatar is that of a slight human man wearing grey leather armor, a black mask outlined in red, and a black cloak. It is thought that this avatar form may be representative of his true form, though it is said that he has been seen wearing a more colorful jerkin. When about in public, Mask's avatar is known to shift continuously from humanoid type to humanoid type. Another of his avatars appears to be a human woman with glowing, pale skin, white, starlit eyes, and dark hair that hangs down to the floor. Part of me thinks that this last appearance has some connection to Shar, given Shar has a somewhat similar appearance. We'll talk about how these two gods are connected to one another in, in a little bit. This avatar walks barefoot, is shrouded in a shadowy aura, 
and speaks with a soft voice. Mask's avatar once did adopt the form of a sentient magic sword. The sword was unnamed, but Siric, its last wielder, named it Godsbane. Since past events that have transpired with Siric, I speculate that Mask has refrained from using this form, or is incapable of manifesting it. Mask's cloak is tied to some very strong abilities. With it, Mask is able to fly and turn invisible. By putting the hood of the cloak up, Mask is capable of casting an impervious illusion upon himself. While Mask will not lend out any of his weapons, he may lend out his cloak to his most devout worshippers so they may fulfill a task for Mask himself or his faith in general. Mask has three known manifestations. The first manifestation is described as a drifting cloud of darkness. Within this cloud may or may not be a cowled human head. This manifestation easily passes through any barrier without taking any harm. The second manifestation is described as a nailless human hand. This hand can wield items, point and direct, emit dust only to then write in it, or lash out and strangle a creature. Both of the previous two manifestations cause any lock they touch to open, and cause any restraint to crumble away. Any followers touched by either manifestation can then pass along through metal, much like the touch masks Avatar's grant. A third and last manifestation is simply wispy, soft, chuckling laughter. Mask may also make use of the following creatures in service to him. Honest hags, doppelgangers, ettercaps, kanku, verbeeg, were-rats, were-wolves, were-foxes, all types and varieties of shadowy monsters, shadow dragons, shadows, and umbral glooms. Mask may also show his favor or disfavor with the appearance of the following phenomena, beasts, and or objects. Shadows where there should be none, smoky gray horses, gray or black cats, gray dogs, gloomwinged moths, tenebrous worms, gray goats, vapor flowers, don't know canonically what a vapor flower is, smoky quartz, gray calcinity, Grey Embanded Onyx, Ravenar, which is a type of black gemstone, Rogue Stone, a type of gemstone filled with multiple colors unique to the Forgotten Realms, Crows, Condors, and Grey Doves. Abilities The following abilities are taken from 2nd edition and 3rd edition sources, so please understand that they may not translate fully to the 5th edition game. I would speculate that Mask stands as a lesser deity just as he did in both those editions, so I would think these abilities are likely still applicable to him. Mask's avatar is no longer able to walk the surface of Toril, but likely work for him throughout the rest of the planes. As a lesser deity, Mask can take the result of a 10 on any check he makes. Natural ones on saving throws or attack rolls are treated as normal rolls, rather than as automatic failures. Mask has divine senses that allow him to sense out with all senses aside from taste to a distance of 10 miles, which is approximately 16 kilometers. Not only does this extend from him, but also from his worshippers, holy sites, holy objects, and any location where his name or any of his titles have been spoken within the last hour. Even more than that, he can branch out his senses to sense at up to five different locations at once. 
Bass can also block the divine senses of any deity of his rank or lower in two remote locations for a maximum duration of 10 hours. Mask has a portfolio sense that allows him to sense any act of assassination or thievery, but either of those events must affect 500 people or more. Mask is also aware of any secretive dealings in the dark that also affect 500 or more people. Mask is able to create magic items that helps an individual deceive or steal, as well as any items related to the darkness or shadow, so long as that item's value does not exceed 30,000 gold pieces. Mask may also gift his followers with magical plus one daggers that do not reflect light or make any noise when used. Wherever he or his avatars walk, Mask makes no sound as he moves about or leaves zero remnants of a trail. His grace and dexterity is supernatural as he easily catches things out of midair, tumbles effortlessly through small spaces, and performs several things all at once as he hangs in midair. Should he have a hand free, he can catch things out of the air and redirect them at other creatures, much like he is wearing gloves of missile snaring. With a simple touch, Mask's avatars can destroy any manacles or chains or unlock any lock. Their touch may also grant his followers the ability to pass through metal, much like that of bars from a prison or from a metallic weapon swung at them. It is mentioned that Mask's avatars can become invisible at will. Though I don't know if that is just inherent to him, and aside from his cloak that allows him to do the same, or if this is in direct reference to the cloak once more. Around the Avatar's mask is an aura that prevents anyone from being immune to illusion, aside from such immunities granted by other deities and their avatars. The avatars are immune to spells and effects that charm, produce fear, or force the mind against its will. The Avatar's mind cannot be read by both mortal and deity-like, unless Mask allows it. Personal History If you recall from the last episode on Shar, I had written down in my research somewhere that Mask was Shar's son. It was pointed out to me that in the novel Shadow Realm, Mask is indeed revealed to have been Shar's son. I don't know if I can say Mask is still fully Shar's son, but we will get to that. In order to fulfill future events, which we will discuss later, Shar had to create a herald. She took on the guise of a human woman, became with child, and birthed a divine human. It goes unstated when this happened, but this divine human male was known as Lesenor. And Lesenor lived his life as a human disregarding what he knew to be his true nature. Eventually he would go on to accept who he truly was, and became Mask. Referencing this short story Soulbound, found in the Realms of the Dragon Anthology book, the events discuss Kessen Rell, the first chosen of Mask, and a particular Shadow Dragon. We will come back to these two in a little bit. But the story is dated to negative 646 Dale Reckoning. This would be the early state given where mention of Mask's faith in worship is present. Referring to Shar's portfolios during the height of the Netherese Empire, given in 2nd edition's Netheral Empire Magic box set, Shar held the portfolios of thievery and thieves. I would imagine that once Mass decided to embrace his godhood, Shar passed these portfolios willingly onto her son. Immediately prior to the Time of Troubles, Mask was an intermediate power, having gained some influence since the 1st edition era, when he was listed as a lesser power. 
The specifics of this rise in influence are not stated in any source book. At the start of the time of troubles in 1358 Dale Reckoning, masks fell down to the surface of Faerun, much like the vast majority of the Faerunian pantheon. The events I touch on are mentioned in source books, but the Avatar series of novels provide further detail and context. Rather than adopt a humanoid form, Mas turned himself into a rose-red sentient sword. It presented itself with a female persona as it spoke in the minds of those who wielded it. This long sword would eventually come into possession of a few different people. The sword hungered for the energy of souls in order to sustain itself. It also drove its previous wielders to become unstable. That was until Cyric, when he was still immortal, killed the previous wielder, a halfling named Atherton Cooper, but also known as Sneakabout. With this sword, Cyric killed Baal at Boreskir Bridge, fulfilling the needed clause that only a deity could slay another deity. Cyric would go on to call the sword Godsbane for this very reason. Later in the battle that ensued atop Blackstaff Tower in Waterdeep, Midnight, who was soon to become Mistra, killed Mercule, but also Cyric killed Kelimvor, who was still immortal at this time, as well. Cyric did not know it at the time, but Godsbane absorbed and imprisoned Kelimvor's soul within itself, hiding away Kelimvor from Cyric. Not too long after Cyric's ascension, he would learn from Mass the whereabouts of Lyra, the goddess of illusions. Cyric would travel to Lyra's realm, murder, and assumedly take the portfolio of illusions for himself. Lyra's murder is mentioned in the Prince of Lies novel, though it is never ever described in source books or novels to my knowledge. Cyric believed at that time that he had seized yet another portfolio for himself, though it was always maintained by Lyra's faithful that Cyric never actually killed Lyra. Rather that Lyra managed to dupe Cyric into thinking he had stolen away her illusion portfolio by pulling off an awesomely powerful illusion, all the while Lyra was alive and well. After all, following the second sundering, Lyra once more is found in the Faerodian pantheon. Given Mask's intrigues and mischievous streak, I do have to wonder if he was in on this plan with Lyra the whole time. For the ten years following the Time of Troubles, Mask was so heavily involved with Cyric that he had long ignored and abandoned a significant portion of his worshippers. Due to this, Mask fell down from an intermediate power to that of a lesser power. Switching allegiances once more, Mask would come to assist in the removal of Cyric from his status as God of the Dead in a temporary alliance with Torm, Mistra, and Ogma. All these deities sought out the author of the Srinishad, this author, Rinda, who had been forced to pen the Shrunashad by Cyric and his followers. These gods asked for another tone to be penned, the true life of Cyric. This book would counter the Shrunashad directly. Touching on it briefly, the Shrunashad was an immensely powerful tome that would brainwash those who read it, or those who heard the words read from it, into becoming devout followers of Cyric. This extended to deities as well. During this time, Mask also undermined the worship of Cyric by raining down divine fire upon Cyric's most important temple in Zendel Keep. Mask would draw the hatred and attention of Kezif, the Chaos Hound, around this time as well. About a decade after Cyric arose to godhood, 
Sirk released Kezev from his binds in Pandemonium to hunt across the cosmos once more. Sirk released Kezev to hunt down the spirit of Kelmvor or Lionsbane. As you will recall, within Godsbane, Mask was able to hide away Kelmvor's soul in a pocket dimension. After his first initial years of being a god, Sirk could never find Kelmvor's soul, much to his frustration. Sirk desired to have Kelmvor's soul interlord it over Mistra since Mistra and Kelmvor were romantically involved. Mask, who wanted to steal the lies portfolio from Sirik, knew he could leverage Kelmvor's soul in a temporary alliance between him and Mistra, so Mask tricked Immortal into performing a ritual to bind and trap Kezef. Mask later released Kezef within the City of Dead to sow further confusion in Sirik's realm as the plot to remove Sirik as God of the Dead was put into action. Kezef would cause mayhem here, but swear to hunt down Mask across the plains afterwards. Mask unfortunately lost his portfolio of intrigue to Sirik at this time. Fazul Shembril was to read the Serenishad. If you will recall, Fazul is and still was at that time was Bane's most devout follower. Sirik wanted to force Fazul over to his side since Sirik had recently taken on the portfolio of strife from the then deceased Bane. The problem was, Mask had enveloped Fazul to protect Fazul from the effects of the Shrinashad. After Mask read the Shrinashad, God's Bane would eventually reveal that it had been lying to Sirk about its allegiances. This happening as a result of Mask's befuddled mind reeling from the effects of reading the Shrinashad. Angered, Sirk broke the sword in two. Mask's essence tied up in the sword was released and would blend it with Sirik as he claimed the portfolio of intrigue from Mask, and Mask was severely weakened. Mask would exist as a demi-power for a short time following this, although at the same time, Kelmvor was released from God's Bane finally. There is more detail to be said on Sirik's fall from God of the Dead and Kelmvor taking up that mantle, but that's best left for another time. In the year 1371 Dale Reckoning, Mask was still being hounded and chased after by Kezef, and the weakened god of Thieves was now simply a demigod fleeing across the plains. Seeking out Tempest, he asked the god of war to call all twelve greater powers at that time together to hold a trial against Sirk and prove Sirk's inability to hold the portfolio of strife. Sirk's mind was unstable, and thus the claim was, quote, Innocence by way of insanity by which Sirik stands accused of failing in his godly duty to spread strife and discord, end quote. Mast hoped that once Sirik was proven guilty, he could regain the portfolio of intrigue stolen away from him. Further on, Mistra enchanted the sword of one of her followers with an enchantment that would kill any canine it struck and prevent the wielder from being tracked by any canine, mundane, or supernatural. The goddess of magic did this in an attempt to trap Mask, he would come to know of this sword through his own connections. Mistra was angered with Mask since by having Tempest to call Sirik to trial, Mistra and her former lover Kelmvor came under the same charges for neglecting their respective portfolios properly. Suspecting Mistra's intentions, Mask still came for the sword. Mistra's avatar appeared and held Mask in place. Kezef, was always on his heels, appeared and chomped down on Mask as Mistra held the God of Thieves. With vicious force, Kezef tore off one of Mask's legs. With Mask weakened further, Mistra lashed out at him. 
but Mask was saved with the intervention of Tyr and Helm, who in turn imprisoned Mistra. Tyr chastising Mistra for attempting to thwart due process in Sirik's trial, where Mask was to serve as a witness. In the commotion, Kezef retreated. Mistra was brought to the Outer Plains by Tyr and Helm. There, Houndsbane lay, and before Mistra's follower could snatch it back up, Mask took it for himself, disallowing Kezef from sniffing him out forevermore. A few years would go by, and Mask would come to regain his power as a lesser deity and regrow his leg after Kezef's attack against him. Usually, I leave any discussion of a deity's chosen for later on in the podcast, but Mask's chosen are intrinsically tied to his history from this point forward. The details I mention next are covered in a connected set of novels. In chronological order, the Erebus Kale trilogy, the Twilight War trilogy, and finally the Godborn novel featured in the Sundering series, all written by Paul S. Kemp. In 1371 Dale Reckoning, Jurassic Riven and Erebus Kale were rivals and enemies in a thieves' guild known as the Night Knives in Selgaunt. At the time, their guild leader was a high-standing Mascaran priest and had discerned that a chosen of Mask would soon come to be chosen from the Night Knives. In his folly, this guild leader thought the chosen to be himself. Mask instead had chosen Kale and Riven. Kale was to be Mask's first, and Riven was to be Mask's second of five chosen. It is possible that one of the other three is Kesson Rell, but at the very least, Two of these other five have yet to be revealed, at least to my knowledge. To start, both human men were fully against the idea of being a god's divine agent. Neither of them were religious or dabbled in any sort of magic. Eventually, on their own terms, Kale and Riven would accept their titles as well come to be friends and allies. Kale would be transformed from a human into a shade, and both men's powers would grow in scale. A couple times, Kale saw depictions or actually meets with Mask. At those times, Kale recognized an almost familial resemblance between Riven and Mask. We will come back to that detail in a bit. Riven and Kale are tasked with two key objectives for Mask. The first was to regain Mask's stolen piece of divinity from one of Mask's former chosen, Kesson Rel. The other was to assist Mask's efforts in breaking the cycle of night. We go on to learn later in the novels that the Cycle of Night is an event that has transpired on multiple different worlds in the multiverse. On these worlds, the Shadow Storm is summoned, the Shadow Storm being an immense deadly storm of darkness and necrotic energy that engulfs the sky of a given world. This storm is Shar's creation, and with it, Shar consumes the world, reducing it to a desired void of nothingness and darkness. Each time the Shadow Storm has been summoned, it has always been preceded by the death and absorption of Shar's Herald. Now, given the way it is described in the book, either Mask has been created on all these different worlds by Shar to then eventually serve as her Herald, or by happenstance the one Herald Kale and Riven learn of just so happened to bear the same name. I think it is the former rather than the latter, serving as a repeated pattern across these worlds. While in pursuit of these two goals, Kale made a deal with Mephistopheles, the Archduke of the Eighth Layer of the Nine Hells. Now, Kale and Riven at this time had a tiefling friend and adventuring companion called Megadon. Megadon is Mephistopheles' son. So in exchange for Megadon's soul, which Mephistopheles had claimed, 
Kale offered up masked stolen shard of divinity from Kessenrel, which had yet to be reclaimed. Far back in the negative 600s Dale Reckoning, Mask had named Kessenrel as first chosen. Later, with betrayal in mind, Kessen had learned of another world called Ephyrus, where a shadow storm had wasted away the life of that planet. And on Ephyrus was the Black Chalice, a holy artifact tied to Mask. Kessen traveled to this dying world and drank from that Black Chalice. This allowed Kessen to steal a sliver of divinity from Mask. Kessen would attempt to bind a shadow dragon named Frolonastus to his surface. But in order to do so, Kessen had to use his Shard of Divinity. Kessen was then able to ensnare this dragon under his control, and then order this dragon to attack his former Mascaran faithful. These Mascarans, learning of his betrayal, tricked Kessen, and instead bound the entire Shard of the Divinity and piece of Kessen's soul within the Shadow Dragon. Kale and Revan would go on to learn that Kessen Rell abandoned Mask in favor of Shar. In service of Shar, Kessenrel adopted the name of Volumvax. Now I know in the Shar episode, Volumvax was said to have received a Shard of Divinity from Shar, but I think the source book that I got that information from was either misinformed or was taking the stance of an unreliable narrator. Jumping forward, Kale and Revan found and killed this Shadow Dragon, thinking of freeing the Vine Shard for their patron deity. Kale and Revan had a history with the Shadow Dragon before. The problem was that they had unknowingly defeated a simulacrum of Volumvax earlier and thought to be free of him. Though when the divinity was freed from the dead dragon, the true Volumvax appeared and stole back what was once his. Kale and Revan would later be accompanied by a Sharon High Priest named Rivalin in an uneasy temporary alliance in order to combat Volumvax. They themselves traveled to the soon-to-be-consumed world of Ephyrus. There, Revan and Kale learned that Mask was Shar's herald. Both chosen drank from the Black Chalice, and rather than receive any divine power themselves, they both instead became a living vessel to hopefully later receive the divinity Volumvax held, should they defeat him. The group of three were eventually able to kill Volumvax, but as the divine power came out of Volumvax, Rivalin pulled the Black Chalice from an arcane extra-dimensional space where he had hidden it away and drank from it. The divinity that hung in the air then split three ways, being absorbed by Riven, Kale, and Rivalin. Kale would then find his way to Mephistopheles in the Nine Hells. There he fulfilled his deal to the Archfiend by handing over the small amount of divinity he had. Mephistopheles viciously attacked Kale and thought him dead, as the ice from the eighth layer of Cania formed over top the shade. Riven teleported himself to Cania, and there did great harm to Mephistopheles, but to no avail, only to serve to enrage the Archfiend to swear vengeance upon the Chosen of Mask. I believe this attack allowed a protective magical ice barrier to form over Kale before Mephistopheles could do anything further. Some strange magic and wards protected the shade, and Mephistopheles could not break through the ice no matter what magic or weapon he used. At this time, Mask would give himself over to his mother Shar, and allow her to think that the cycle of night would continue just as it had on other worlds, while he held out hope that his chosen would do what was needed to break it. To say Mask was dead at this point isn't entirely true, while it isn't entirely false either. Mask as he was was no longer, but his divinity was still maintained in the bodies of Drasic Revan, 
Rivelin, and Mephistopheles. It was at this time that Mask was also able to pull a fast one on Shar as well, and bound her to the Shadowstorm, that had since been summoned over top of Ordolan. But that storm lasted well over a hundred years through the Spell Plague. And between that of her dealings with Siric and Mistra's murder in 1385 Deal Reckoning, and moving her Divine Realm from the Shadowfell out to the Astral Sea, I have to imagine Mask managed to bind some of his mother, but not all of his mother, to this destructive supernatural storm. Or maybe she was just able to accomplish this while being trapped in the storm. Regardless, the cycle of night and shadow storm was held at bay. At 1484 Dale Reckoning, well ahead into the future, Drazic Revan had taken up residence in Mask's realm of the Shadow Keep in the Shadow Fell. Kale's son, Vassin, a shade himself, was a paladin in service to Amonitor. Vassin's mother, Vasa, was shunted well into the future by Mask to escape the effects of the spell plague and the shadow storm, and her son was born safely to later play his part in breaking the cycle of night. Over the course of the novel, The Godborn, Vassin is able to free his father Kale from beneath the ice of Cania with his father's magical sword. The needed pieces of the divinity in Rivalin, Riven, and Mephistopheles are brought within the vicinity of the Shadowstorm before Shar. There, Kale and Vassin were able to sever the three divinities stored in these three individuals, while Shar's reach for it was pushed back. The divinities pulled together, and Riven claimed it fully for himself, as Mephistopheles retreated back to Cania wounded once more. Mask's essence in the Shadowstorm was pulled out, and Riven blended with it there to become one with Mask, effectively reincarnating the God of Thieves. Later on, I talk about how Mask's alignment shifted from what was Neutral Evil in 3rd edition to Chaotic Neutral as it is listed in 5th edition. Now, it is my personal belief that because Riven, who at the time of this merging with Mask, was the dominant personality between the two, Mask, as he is known, has a differing perspective than he once held in previous editions touching on the resemblance between Mask and Riven that was mentioned previously in these novels, I don't know if Mask knew Riven would become the reincarnated Mask and wanted to hint at that to Kill, or that genuinely the two have a deeper connection that may have some shared type of ancestry. At the same time, this shift in alignment can be tied to Mask's break from both his mother and the cycle of night being allowed to act individually finally. Here at the end of the personal history section, I would just like to give a shout out to Zoe, who helped me wrap my head around the plot and details of the various novels that featured Erebus Kale and Jurassic Revan. Zoe has an art blog over on Tumblr that I have linked down to in the description of this episode. Please take a look at their wonderful work. Personality As mentioned in the personal history section, Mask's power level as a deity has changed quite a bit. Currently, my best guess is that Mask is a lesser deity in the 5th edition hierarchy. In 1st edition, Mask was a lesser deity. He then experienced a brief stint as an intermediate power, preceding the time of troubles. He is listed as an intermediate power in the 2nd edition Forgotten Realms campaign box set. Following the time of troubles, in the Srinishad incident, he was lowered in power down to that of a demigod, briefly only to rise back up to the power of a lesser power, as shown in both 2nd edition's Faiths and Avatars and 3rd edition's Faiths and Pantheons. 
Mask was almost entirely wiped out for the 4th edition period of the Forgotten Realms, to the point that he only existed in some nebulous, minimized state, as a shard of his divinity was split between three different individuals. Though Mask was reincarnated and is present once more for the 5th edition era of the realms. Mask's alignment has shifted as well, although just the one time. Up and through 3rd edition sources, Mask is listed as a neutral evil deity. Then he was described as calm, collected, bold, scheming, wary, and had a mocking sense of humor. Before the time of troubles, Mask had a deep love for hatching convoluted and intricate plots. But when those plots came back to bite him, Mask shifted to being more direct in his plots. Personal Realms In the Great Wheel Cosmological Model used for 1st edition, 2nd edition, and 5th edition Forgotten Realms, Mask once resided on the plane of Hades, but now resides on the Shadowfell. When he resided on Hades, Mask's realm was known as the Shadowkeep, and it was found on the second layer known as Niflheim. Most of what follows, not just for the Great Wheel, but also the World Tree, will essentially be read verbatim from my Shar episode notes, considering both Mask and Shar both resided on the same layer and plane accordingly, just that they had their own separate realms. Things are different for the World Axis, of course, but we will get to that. Hades is known by some to be the most evil of the planes, but you would not know it by its physical description alone. Hades is a plane that drains the color out of all things to some shade of gray, and drains the meaning out of life for all mortals who come there. Eventually apathy sets in, and an individual begins to have no regard for the actions they commit towards one another. Those who stay here for too long lose their sense of all self and become unwilling to leave. With enough time, mortals turn into larvae alongside those evil souls who formed here after dying on the Prime Material. The River Styx passes through the uppermost layer of Oinos, and it is here that the River Styx is at its midpoint as it winds its way through the lower outer plains. Niflheim, also known as Northmen's Despair, is a layer filled with a grey mist, grey pine trees, and grey underbrush. The constant mist not only makes it difficult to see, but also changes sound, making it difficult to pick out where sounds might be coming from. The rugged terrain of Niflheim is marked with many ravines and bluffs which claim many as they travel through the dense fog without realizing where they are stepping. It derives its name from the realm of the Norse goddess Hel, which uses the same name. Other than going through the first layer of Oinos and dodging whatever blood war nonsense might be going on, someone can reach Niflheim by traveling along Yggdrasil, the world ash tree. This plain-spanning tree's roots reach down into Niflheim. Mask Realm of the Shadowkeep is described as a fortification housed in continual magical fog that befuddles the mind. This fog leaves most standing there confused and lost as they stand before the Shadowkeep for the first time. Guarding the Shadowkeep, are at least two shadow dragons that blend into the walls of the gatehouses that surround the keep. Other incorporeal, undead, and shadowy creatures move about the grounds of the keep, lurking and hiding among the heavily shrouded surroundings. Around the shadow keep is a slum with narrow alleys. The obscured black buildings lean over and shroud the dark sky of Hades from those down below. Whispers of plots and schemes can be heard here along with soft footsteps, as masked partitioners sneak about in the dark. Torches affixed to the walls along these streets give off an aroma that attempts to give any visitor a sense of discomfort and unease. 
In prior editions, at least, Mask was described as a deity who was continuously on the move throughout the cosmos. So during that area, it was unlikely that he would even be found in the Shadow Keep should people arrive there. In the World Tree cosmological model used for 3rd edition Forgotten Realms, Mask resides on the Plane of Shadow. As I mentioned in the Shar episode, I'm pretty sure the Plane of Shadow was just the previous name for what is now known as the Shadowfell in present day 5th edition. How and why Mask came to reside in the Plane of Shadow instead of remaining in Hades, I do not know. The Plane of Shadow seems to me to be a one-to-one description of what I know to be the Shadowfell, but I could be wrong. After all, I just read up on it enough to know the basics. So please let me know if there are differences, however slight they might be. The Plane of Shadow is a transitive plane that overlaps or echoes the Prime Material as they are both coexistent with one another. It is a bleak, grim, and dark plane. Hardly any light is present on the Plane of Shadow, and colors are drained from every surface giving the plane a palette of gray, black, and white. The features and landmarks found here are darker, twisted, and dangerous reflections of those found on the Prime Material. An example would be a river on the Prime Material may be reflected as a raging river with dangerous rapids in the Plane of Shadow. Up above this plane is an empty dark sky without any celestial bodies. While reflection of the Prime Material, the Shadowfell is morphic and aspects of it are fluid. Landmarks will generally remain in their primary location, they shift in form and shape, and sometimes may even bleed over into the Prime Material. Much like the Great Wheel model, Mask's realm the Plane of Shadow is known as the Shadow Keep, though it is a bit different in description. Mask's fortress is said to be made entirely from darkness and shadow, so dark and obscured is near impossible to see with the naked eye, even upon close inspection. A daylight spell or other illumination-based magics of equivalent or more powerful level is needed to make it out. Just as before, Mask wasn't one to hang around the Shadow Keep. Rather, he was fond of fulfilling his various plots by traveling across the plains. Petitioners found in Mask's realm look much like they did during their mortal lives, however they take on a darker countenance. In the World Axis cosmological model used for 4th edition Forgotten Realms, Mask's realm was found on the Shadowfell. The Mask during the 4th edition timeline was thought to be dead or missing. But as I mentioned before, his chosen Jurassic Revan took up residence here in the Shadow Keep. A 4th edition source spells out a few new details about the Shadow Keep. In the distant past, as to when I don't know, a portion of the Shadow Keep was removed and turned into a temple known as the Fane of Shadows. This temple has served several dark deities over the centuries. That was until Mask at some time was able to convince the other dark deities that he could appoint the master of the Fane. Since then, the Shadow Keep serves as an anchor point for the Fane of Shadows. This temple returns periodically attaching itself back to the Shadow Keep. It is thought that between the Shadow Keep and the Fane of Shadows, there is immense wealth and powerful items stashed away. These being stolen by Mask over the millennia before being hidden. It is thought that Mask employs some of the most powerful traps and hazards to protect his possessions. Allies and Allegiances there was a time when Lyra might have been considered an ally and friend to Mask. That was until maybe Mask betrayed Lyra and informed Cirque of her location. I still think that that might be up for debate until stated otherwise. It may be that Lyra might still value an alliance with Mask. But at the same time, it's just as reasonable to think that she would want nothing to do with him. 
What's worse is that every other deity Mask has held an alliance with perished in the time of troubles, Baal, Bane, and Ebranduil. Though Bane and Mask are said to have reformed an alliance after Bane's return. But again, whether Mask even entertains the thought of re-establishing an alliance with evil deities, now with his chaotic neutral alignment, is unsaid. I personally speculate that he doesn't. It was mentioned that Mask has flirted with the idea of establishing an alliance with his mother Shar, but Mask rightfully suspected his mother coveted the portfolios he has and smartly has never gone through with it. Outside of the Faerunian pantheon, Mask has or still holds alliances with the drow god of drow males and thievery, Veyron, the dwarven god of luck and thievery, Virgadane, and the halfling god of thievery, Brandubaris. Now, given a shift in alignment, Mask may or may not keep these alliances, and former allies may have become estranged or enemies themselves. Enemies Mask's chief enemy, no doubt, is Sirik, due to all Sirik's transgressions and thefts against Mask. Naturally, Mask is against Joaquin and Helm, whose portfolios exist opposite to his, though he also comes into conflict with other deities such as Denir, Ogma, Savras, Torm, Tyr, and Salune, given their desire to uncover whatever evil deeds he has been plotting, and the desire to find out secretive plans and knowledge in general. Veyron, the drow god of thieves, at least in my understanding, was never seen as an enemy to Mask, but rather a rival or trespasser over similar portfolios. Mask, at least the older evil version of himself, devoted some attention to Veyron, in Veyron, Mask saw an opportunity to steal away some of the power he had inevitably lost to Sirik. Outside of the Faerunian pantheon, Mask is said to be foes with the elven god of mischief and rogues, Ervan Elisir, the gnomish god of illusion and deception, Berevar Cloakshadow, the halfling goddess of trust and hospitality, Sir Olali, and the Moharandi deities Nephethys, goddess of wealth and trade, and Osiris, god of justice, death, and vegetation. Just as I mentioned with his allies, Mask may now be on indifferent terms with these deities, or become allies with them. Deity and Avatar Stat Blocks You can find the second edition stat block for Mask's avatars in the Face and Avatars supplement. You can find the third edition stat block for Mask himself, and his avatars in the Faiths and Pantheon supplement. Symbols. At least according to the source books, Mask has had only one consistent and known symbol, a black velvet mask, either tinged with red or not. The symbol clearly was made in the image of the mask that Mask himself wears. However, in the various Erebus Kale novels, some Muscarans wear a circle of black around their necks bordered by a red ring. This symbol sounds to almost be identical to the symbol of the Sharn Faith save the difference in color that makes up the outer ring. Given the connection between Shar and Mask, this isn't surprising and likely was done purposefully by the author. Central Dogma From Faiths in Pantheons, a 3rd edition supplement, quote, All that occurs within shadow is the purview of Mask. Ownership is nine-tenths of what is right, and ownership is defined as possession. The world belongs to the quick, the smooth-tongued, and the light-fingered. Stealth and wariness are virtues. As are glibness and the skill to say one thing and mean another, 
twisting a situation to your advantage. Wealth rightfully belongs to those who can acquire it. Strive to end each day with more wealth than you began with, but steal what is the most vital, not everything at hand. Honesty is for fools, but apparent honesty is valuable. Make every truth seem plausible, and never lie when you can tell the truth, but leave a mistaken impression. Subtlety is everything. Manipulation is better than force, especially when you can make people think that you have done something on their own initiative. Never do the obvious except to conceal something else. Trust in the shadows, for the bright way make you an easy target. End quote. Presence of the Faith Generally speaking, a mask is worshipped by assassins, beggars, criminals, and rogues of all sorts. In 3rd edition, it is listed that masked clerics typically held a chaotic evil, lawful evil, and neutral evil alignment. As I mentioned earlier, mask currently has a chaotic neutral alignment, so I suspect there has been a change in that dynamic. What's more, given how thieves can be found all across the alignment spectrum, Mask has an awful lot of worshippers who share conflicting alignments. The Mascaran faith is fairly wealthy, and second only to that of Joaquin's. Such wealth is used to hire secretive agents, influence disputes and alliances, and sway people. Such wealth is not to be hoarded and allowed to collect dust. Some Faerunians fear the Mascarans, given their tendency for theft, rather than any other evil activities, though others just think of the Mascarans as just another organized thieves' guild, though with a deeply religious bend to them, which isn't necessarily a bad summation of the Mascarans. Common people will make a quiet prayer to Mask should they need to be stealthy, or if they are in the middle of some intrigue. Some just pray to Mask in order to make sure that their wealth and possessions are left alone. Others have taken up the practice of carrying around a mask's purse. The simple, easily visible coin purse is set up so that both current purse owner and pickpocket are satisfied. A pickpocket is to take the mask's purse and leave the owner's other possessions untouched. The pickpocket sees the small amount of coin as a boon from their god, while the owner sees a small amount of coin as a suitable offering to placate mask and turn his attention away from what is far more valuable. Hierarchy and Structure of the Clergy Depending on what source book you go by, Mascar and clergy are either known as Darkfingers, Darks, which is an informal name, or Demarcheses, or Demarks, depending on their gender. If it wasn't abundantly clear by now, Mascar and clergy are almost always thieves themselves in some capacity. Collectively, all Mascarans may be referred to as the Circle of the Grey Ribbon though the term circlers may be used as a directed insult by outsiders. The Mascaran clergy is not unlike that of a series of connected thieves' guilds across Faerun. Each Mascaran group acts independently throughout the various cities and settlements. By being independent, the Mascarans distance themselves from the potential of disputes, conflicts, alliances, and allegiances from the thieves' guilds that are associated within a given location with other Mascarans in another place. Before Mass saw a reduction in his power, the Mascaran faith was far more independent, but with Mask's loss of standing, and thus the faith also losing something of its own standing, there was a call for some cohesion in order to stem any losses to Sirik's faith. Possibly, though it goes unsaid, this cohesion may have been reinforced 
once more after Mask went missing during the Spell Plague. How that stands now is unfortunately up to you, until it is said otherwise. Individually, each Mascaran addresses one another as sister or brother shadow, despite what rank they may hold in the Mascaran clergy. The Mascaran faith follows a given hierarchy in ascending order. The unproven, who are the novices of the faith, proven brother or sister, veteran brother or sister, and master brother or sister. The leader of each Mascaran temple is known as the Lady or Lord Master. High clergy may also be referred to as Hidden Ones. Responsibilities and Duties of the Faithful Clergy of Mask are expected to have more than a singular identity. Their true identity as a member of the Mascaran faith is expected to be hidden while presenting one or more facades publicly, whether that be pretending to be a member of another faith or occupation. Stealth and skullduggery is always favored by Mascaran clergy over any other type of open confrontation. The Mascaran faith, for example, was so well hidden around the time of the Srinishad incident that many thought Mask to be dead. Mascarans are expected to support singular thieves and thieves' guilds throughout Faerun. This support also includes medical and healing assistance when required. According to Ed Greenwood Presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms, the clergy are expected to either offer up a stolen gem to Mask Monthly. If they do not manage to take a gem, the member is then expected to offer up 2,000 gold pieces in coin or other monetary notes. So long as this tithe is paid in full, a Mascaran is free to keep what they have stolen for the rest of the month. However, if they cannot pay the tithe, everything they have stolen is to be given up to the organization. While theft is one of the principal activities a Mascaran is expected to traffic in religiously, Deceit is equally important, and is to be practiced daily. Theft is an activity best left to the right time, rather than carried out frivolously as well. Mascarans think that low-value traffic as practiced by pickpockets and purse snatchers is beneath them. Instead, they carry out the plots and deceit so as to be able to pull off valuable heists and thefts. Some Mascarans are well known for their craft of counterfeits and replicas. Such items can be swapped for the real thing in the midst of a theft. Duping people in this way makes the job that much more satisfying, rather than just taking the item alone. Prior to losing his portfolio of intrigue to Cyric, Mask asked that his clergy involve themselves in all sorts of elaborate political and factional plots. By doing so, Mascarans were able to establish all sorts of red herrings and other types of misdirection and obfuscation that got authorities off their trail for the thefts that they would commit. After Mask lost the intrigue portfolio, his clergy were instead to retreat from such public settings and instead carry out their dealings in a smaller and more private capacity from the shadows. This may have changed back to the previous standing, given what I think would be Mask's regaining of the intrigue portfolio. In a given day, Mascaran clergy work on their various schemes, support local thieves or thieves' guilds in a variety of ways, and or receive the tithes from thieves and guilds across a settlement. Each temple and place of worship tends to have its own policy when dealing with unaffiliated thieves. Some may assist unaffiliated thieves, but secretly tell any local thieves' guild of their activities. Some deny any aid and still tell, while others may fully support all thieves while not informing any local guilds whatsoever, so long as the tithe to mask is given. A value trait among Mascaran clergy is reliability and accuracy in stating when one can succeed in their aims. 
Niskarans who continually are late or fail in their personal endeavors often do not see any promotion in the faith. Orders and Priestly Bodies Now being that the mechanics and class options presented in each edition influence the lore and the titles and names we give to things, Muscarum Specialty Priests in 2nd Edition referred to as Demarks and Demarquesses. After 2nd Edition, a Specialty Priest wasn't a thing anymore, and Demarques and Demark were then used in turn to refer to Muscarum clergy as a whole. Now again, confusingly, at least according to Ed Greenwood Presents Elminster's Guide to the Forgotten Realms, all within the Muscarum faith are considered to be a part of the Circle of the Grey Ribbon. But in Face and Avatars from 2nd edition, it says that the Circle of the Grey Ribbon is reserved for those who achieve some daring theft or perform some amazing type of deception. Members of the Circle of the Grey Ribbon meet in secret annually and vote upon who they will admit into the Circle. The Catfoot is a particular variety of Mascaran clergy member specifically located in urban settings. Each Catfoot is expected to be part conman, part informant, in part crooked clergy. They will espouse the tenets of Muscaran teachings, all the while going against them for their own gain. But a catfoot must help any Muscaran out of a predicament, so long as they don't have to risk their own life. Each catfoot is intimately familiar with the city they are assigned to, and are valuable informants to the Muscaran faith. They know of pretty much all the shortcuts, crooked guards, safe houses, and fences behind city walls. Another particular variety of Muscaran clergy is a night runner who specifically operates outside city walls, usually in adventuring groups. Given their assignment, night runners prefer the open road, the wilderness, and dungeon delving. They openly display and discuss their affiliation with the Muscaran faith while out in the world. In a way, they can be seen as a form of itinerant clergy, though they do not go specifically out with the intention of teaching and converting people. Appearance and Dress The ceremonial dress of the Muscaran clergy might come as a bit of a surprise. The tunic and trousers that are worn are made up of bright colors and patterns, with balloons, sleeves, and pant legs. This dress is adorned with shimmering embroidery as a display and sign of wealth. Such colorful dress is covered over with a gray cloak, likely in direct imitation to the one their patron deity wears. It should go without saying, but the ceremonial dress includes a worn mask. Though in areas where masks is worshipped openly, such masks tend to be smaller and obscure less at the face. And in places where mask is not worshipped openly, these masks tend to be large and obscure more at the face. Those mascarans who have beards may even need masks that extend even past the chin to hide away their facial hair. It is said that the tolerance of theft in a given settlement can be determined by looking at the face, or the mask if you will, of the local mascaran clergy. Though in Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide for 5th edition, Mascaran clergy are said to wear veil masks. How much that is in line with the mask worn by older priests from 3rd edition and back, I leave that up to you. If a place of worship has fallen on hard times, the whole bright ceremonial dress may be issued in favor of just a grey cloak and black mask. There's no distinctive badge of office for higher ranking Mascarans though usually they can be picked out by the various magical items that they carry in order to carry out their thefts and plots. When out adventuring, Muscarans may disguise themselves as other common folk or clergy from other faiths. Clerics specifically wear what they need to match their needs. Now back when specialty priests were a thing in 2nd edition, they either wore some form of light armor, typically leather, or went about disguised as some other simple townsfolk. 
Catfoot wears only black and gray clothes and armor. This means their leather armor is dyed either of these two colors. The hooded cloak a catfoot wears is always either black or midnight blue. They also wear a black domino mask or a fuller mask to obscure their entire face. Nightrunners dress much like you would expect a typical thief or rogue in any adventuring party. They wear leather armor and make use of the various tools and weapons of the thief. The only difference is that stamped upon the hilts of each of their daggers is a mask symbol. These daggers serve as the Nightrunner's holy symbol. Rituals As the god of thieves, Mascar and Cleric pray and reflect on their spells either at night or when found in some dark place. The ritual of the unseen presence is a monthly rite. This ritual is done to honor and acknowledge mask scrutiny over all deeds that are performed in secret. It involves hymns, chanting, and offerings of wealth in mask's name. Any coin that has been stolen is placed in crucibles or braziers on either side of a central altar and melted down. Sunset prayers are daily prayers made to mask by common folk and the Mascaran clergy before a central altar. They kneel and worship while offering up coin in mask's name. Given mask's penchant for causing both people to rise and fall despite their social standing, the low-ranking clergy will present money to their superiors, while the highest-ranking clergy members present coin down to the lowest-ranking clergy member at each sunset prayer. There are darker rituals carried out to acknowledge the promotion of individual clergy members, but they are a well-guarded secret among the full clergy. Rituals such as this and the Unseen Presence are carried out behind the protection and cover of a unique Mascaran spell called Striking Shadows to harm or scare away those who might want to stick their nose into things that are none of their business. Specific to the city of Tephalem and the Shadow Masters out in eastern Faerun is the Ritual of Shadow Walking. The Shadow Masters are a devout thieves' guild dedicated to mask. Now this ritual is discussed in a 3rd edition of Forgotten Realms book, so it may have spread to other Mascaran places of worship by now. But given the emphasis on secrecy and mask's faith, it just as likely may just be still practiced in Thesk. This ritual was discovered by a high priest in the Mascaran temple out in Tephalum. The ritual of shadow walking will allow someone to become a shadow walker. This will attune one's body to shadow stuff, but it is done in exchange for that person's own vitality. After the ritual is complete, the shadow walker will look much the same, though their shadow will look to be far darker and clearer than ever before. Shadow walkers are capable of manipulating shadows and darkness through their awarded spells. In the city of Waterdeep, Liar's Night is a holy day that takes place on the 30th of Marpanoth, in tribute to Lara and Mask. Multitudes across the city will disguise themselves for the night, either through practical or magical means. While this holy day is meant primarily to placate the god of thieves and goddess of illusions, it has a celebratory air to it. Elaborate and peculiar costumes and disguises are celebrated and encouraged. Pumpkins and gourds are hollowed out and a face is carved onto the outside surface. A lit candle is then placed inside on the evening of the 30th to mark the start of the festivities. The carved pumpkin or gourd is said to represent the mask the person adopts for Liar's Night, while the burning candle within symbolizes the true soul of the person behind the mask. It is said that so long as the candle remains lit throughout the night, any lies or tricks you play on Liar's Night will not sully your social standing, though it is bad luck to return in the wee hours of the morning to see your candle out. That being said, it is a social taboo for anyone who intentionally snuffs out the candle's 
placed in carved gourds or pumpkins. Celebrants engage in all sorts of hedonistic activities and frivolities, playing pranks and tricks on one another. Pickpockets are far more common on Liar's Night, so experienced celebrants know to keep little coin and things of value on them. In place of such things, celebrants stuff their pockets and purses with candies. Traditionally, if a pickpocket takes a candy, they are to leave a small friendly token in exchange. Though recently, most adults just end up exchanging candy with one another and handing it out to children who ask for some. No contracts are to be made out and signed on Liar's Night, since no one is sure enough to trust what might be agreed to on this holy day. Magicians and illusionists are quite busy on Liar's Night performing at various different venues and parties. General Locations of Places of Worship Mascaran places of worship are typically housed in dimly lit places. Unsurprisingly, most of these places are hidden away from authorities. One of these places are often old cellars that can access by way of city sewers. The coin and other treasures that have been stolen away over the many years is hidden within secret chambers in places within Mascaran places of worship. Should there be a thieves' guild that operates openly within a settlement, a place of worship to mask may operate openly and be located close by. What's more, in cities where more than one thieves' guilds may operate, Mascaran places of worship are often connected to each thieves' guild's base of operations via secret tunnels. Mascaran places of worship then serve as a neutral ground for these guilds to meet. The altar in each place of worship is a large stone block that has a large black mask, usually six feet across or more, that floats above it, or a mosaic made out of precious gemstones displays a black mask in behind the altar, usually of similar dimensions. Specific Places of Worship The rogue redeemed is a Mascaran temple in Prosker that espouses a different perspective in teaching a mask's tenets, one which causes other Mascarans to raise an eyebrow with concern. Mascarans here do not have to pay any tithe or percentage of what they have stolen back to the temple, Instead, there is a greater importance placed upon the education of the thief. If the thief can prove that their latest endeavors has helped them learn something new about their occupation, no coin or treasure needs to be offered up to mask. The House of the Master's Shadow in Tephilim is the largest Mascaran temple on the continent. This temple has agents known as local shadows hidden in all the major Faerunian cities who provide the clergy in this temple with information. However, they all act to build the Mascaran faith by seeding rumors of treasure within these cities in an attempt to attract thieves. At least at the time of the writing of second edition products, this temple was intent on accumulating further knowledge about their various magics and how best they could then manipulate and use those magics to influence politics across all Faerun. Tela Musahada is the local Mascaran temple in Kalimport. A local thieves' guild known as the Shadow Sun make use of this temple as, as a secondary headquarters of sorts. It serves as a safe passageway to the undercity of Kalimport, known as the Muzad. The Mascarans hold an alliance with the Sharans who reside in their respective massive temple complex, known as the Temple of Old Night, beneath the city of Kalimport. Nernin's Marvelous Masks is a mask shop in the Castle Ward of Waterdeep. The proprietor, Nernin, is worshipped is rumored to be connected to Mask's faith somehow. In the front of the shop floats a large deep purple half-mask, not unholy like Mask's symbol. This mask turns on its own volition as it looks towards customers and will sometimes float right up to them. 
Nernine herself is a cleric of mask who assists a small group of thieves in their exploits and missions throughout the city. In the cellars beneath Nernine's shop is a chapel to mask. Far greater detail of the shop can be found in Dragon issue number 321. But keep in mind this was discussed in the 3rd edition era of the realms, so well over a century has passed since this information was presented canonically. Named temples to mask include the House of Spires and Shadows, simply better known as the Shadow Spires in Westgate, and the House of the Master Shadow hidden in Uthmir. An unnamed temple to mask can be found in Byzantur, which doubles as the local headquarters for the city's thieves' guild. Shrines to mask can be found in Mallmaster, Tasseldale, possibly hidden in the ruins of Tilverton, Athcatla, where there are several hidden shrines, and at the bottom of the Lake of Bones near the Serpent Hills. Character Options For a second edition, in Warriors and Priests of the Realms, you can find an option for Mascar and Crusaders and the breakdown for the Catfoot and Nightrunner Priest variants. For third edition, in Unapproachable East there is a template to apply to characters who have gone through the appropriate ritual to become a Shadow Walker. Continuing on with building backgrounds for various worshippers and faithful for the deities I present in this podcast, if I was to suggest a custom background for Mascarans, I would recommend the following. For your two skill proficiencies, Sleight of Hand and Stealth. For your two languages or tool proficiencies, I would take Thieves' Cant and Thieves' Tools. Though since so many Mascarans may be rogues already, perhaps it would be better to propose proficiencies with the Forgery Kit and Disguise Kit. For your equipment, there's the Acolyte's Equipment for the Player's Handbook, or the Criminal's Equipment from the Player's Handbook, though using some of the gold that comes with that to get a Holy Symbol. Finally, for the Ribbon feature attached to the background, there's the Acolyte's Shelter of the Faithful, the Charlatan's False Identity, the Criminal's Criminal Contact, and the Urchin's City Secrets. Here is a list of subclasses I think would be thematically appropriate for an NPC or PC to take if they are a Mascaran. For the Bard, there's the College of Whispers from the Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Cleric, there's the Trickery Domain from the Player's Handbook. For the Monk, there's the Way of Shadow from the Player's Handbook. For the Ranger, there's the Gloomstalker for Xanthar's Guide to Everything. For the Rogue, there's the Arcane Trickster, Assassin, and Thief from the Player's Handbook. Inquisitive and Mastermind from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. And the Phantom Rogue from Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. For the Sorcerer, there's the Shadow and Divine Soul Sorcerer from Xanthar's Guide to Everything. Finally, for the Wizard, there's the School of Illusion from the Player's Handbook. Dungeon Master Options Starting with monsters, here's a list of creatures from official 5th edition sources that would, or I think could, worship and or serve Mask. For the Monster Manual, there's the Doppelganger, Ettercap, Kanku, Were-Rat, Were-Wolf, the Shadow Dragon Template, the Shadow, Cat, Goat, Giant Goat, and Mastiff. From Volo's Guide to Monsters, there's the Honest Hag and Shadow Mastiff. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, there's the Gloom Stalker. From Rhyme of the Frost Maiden, there's the Verbig Longstrider and Verbig Marauder. From Baldur's Gate Descent into Avernus, there's the Flying Dagger. And finally, from Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there's the Shadow Assassin. 
Touching on some of the monsters associated with masks that are currently aren't present in 5th edition sources, there's the werefox, which might also be called the foxwoman, which is a type of lycanthrope. In their humanoid form, they're ex- in their humanoid form, they are explicitly only female elves. They can change form to a fox-humanoid hybrid or into a silver fox. These chaotic evil creatures are vain and hedonistic. They enchant male humanoids with their exceptional beauty with the sole purpose of enslaving them. Where foxes can be found in 2nd edition's monstrous manual. Umbral glooms are extraplanar creatures native to the plane of shadow, made up of shadow essence and numerous purple eyes. They are used by Shar and her clergy often as servitors, though Mask has started claiming them for his own as well. These creatures prefer to ambush from the dark and put out any sources of light in combat. They speak to one another in the tongue of the Netherese, which may belie the creation at the hands of the Shadowvar. The stats and further lore for the Umbral Gloom can be found in Dragon Magazine. 353. Gloomwing moths are the adult stage of the Tenebrous Worm. At least in second edition terms, these creatures were native to the demiplane of shadow. Gloomwings are large moths with shimmering patterns of black and silver. These patterns both allow it to camouflage itself easily in the dark as well as potentially confuse those who gaze upon them. They can emit pheromones to either attract other nearby gloomwings or cause weakness in nearby non-insects. Gloomwings may attempt to carry off small-sized creatures weighing less than 61 pounds. They attack with claws on their legs and their mandibles. The eggs of the gloomwing are laid inside the corpses of creatures who are of a small size or larger. Tenebrous worms look like giant caterpillars. They have strong mandibles that inject dangerous poison into their victims. The tenebrous worm's mandibles are thought to be attractive and fetch a large sum of gold pieces. The first edition stat block for the Gloomwing can be found in the Monster Manual 2. A second edition stat block for both the Gloomwing and tenebrous worm can be found in the Monstrous Manual. To round out this discussion on stat blocks that might be of use to a dungeon master, we'll talk about humanoid NPCs. From the Monster Manual, there's the Acolyte, Assassin, and Priest. From Volo's Guide to Monsters is the Master Thief and Illusionist. Finally, from Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, you could reskin the Thought Spy. Moving on, we'll talk about magic items. The Mask of Mysteries is the holy Mascaran tome detailed in 2nd edition's Prayers from the Faithful. Much like other holy tomes in the source book, the Mask of Mysteries is not what you would call your usual tome. The Mask of Mysteries looks like a dull black mask made of silk. There's no visible markings upon it. It is attached to a headband, and the mask covers the top of the face. Sewn to the mask is a moldy covering that dangles down to cover the rest of the face. This ensemble gives the wearer a sinister look. The mask has a spicy odor to it, though no one has come to a consensus as to what exactly the smell is reminiscent of. The mask is weightless and does not make any sound when moved about. In order to activate and reveal the spells the Mask of Mysteries contains, a person must first kiss the mask and speak Mask's name or one of his two secret names, Veldreos or Ondoom, then kiss the mask again. The person does not need to be a Mascaran to activate it either. After that, the written details of a spell will be written upon the inside of the moldy covering that makes up the bottom portion of the Mask of Mysteries. A person may will one of the known spells of the mask to appear. 
but if they do not know any of the spells contained within it, a random one from the mask's spell roster will appear. The spell can be made to disappear by the will of the wearer, or awakening the mask again to make another spell appear. The Mask of Mysteries is first encountered in 812 Dale Reckoning. It was found upon the corpse of a human thief entombed on the Dragon Isle out in the sea fallen stars. As most magic items do, the mask passed through the hands of several different people and creatures, but this one has a rather bloody history given that so many previous owners ended up murdered for it. The last credible report of it was in 1364 Dale Reckoning, when a Kalashite merchant let it be known that it was up for sale. This only led to various rival thieves arriving to steal it coincidentally at the same time. One of them absconded with it, while all the others lay dead. A minor enchantment placed upon the mask prevents the wearer from the effects of dust or smoke. Another little-known feature of the mask is the ability for Mascarin to will it to float in midair and cast once per round on its own, though the Mascarin will suffer a small amount of hit point damage to fulfill this ability. The Black Chalice is a holy Mascarin artifact that holds within it a great power. It looks to be nothing more than a tarnished silver chalice with tiny black gems that wrap around the chalice's stem, though small wisps of shadow hang around the mouth of the chalice. Despite its small size, it weighed far more than it looked. Within, a constant supply of some oily liquid filled the chalice only a quarter of the way. From this chalice, Kes and Rel stole a small slice of mass divinity. The black chalice once was held on the dying planet of Ephyrus before it was brought back and secreted away by Rivalin, the Sharon priest who held a temporary alliance with Erebus Kale and Jurassic Revan. I'm going to list off magic items found in official 5th edition sources that I feel that the Mascaran clergy would definitely have access to and might be willing to give out to your various adventuring groups. From the Dungeon Master's Guide, there's the Boots of Elvenkind, the Boots of Speed, the Chime of Opening, the Cloak of Arachnida, Cloak of Displacement, Cloak of Elvenkind, Cloak of Invisibility, Cloak of the Bat, Dagger of Venom, Deck of Illusions, Dust of Disappearance, Ever Smoking Bottle, Glamoured Studded Leather, Gloves of Missile Snaring, Gloves of Thievery, Goggles of Night, Hat of Disguise, The Agility Iun Stone, Manual of Quickness of Action, Oil of Sharpness, Oil of Slipperiness, Potion of Speed, Ring of Evasion, Ring of Free Action, Ring of Invisibility, Rope of Climbing, Slippers of Spider Climbing, Vicious Dagger, Vicious Short Sword, Vicious Hand Crossbow, Vicious Short Bow, Wand of Magic Detection, plus one to plus three various magical armors and weapons associated with the rogues, various proficiencies. From Waterdeep Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there's the Dagger of Blindsight. From Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, there's Ring of Obscuring. From Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica, you could reflavor the Dimir Guild Signet. From Waterdeep Dragon Heist, there's the Bracer of Flying Daggers. From Tasha's Cauldron of Everything, there's the Shadowfell Brand Tattoo, Ghost Step Tattoo, Masquerade Tattoo, and the Shadowfell Shard. Finally, from Xanathar's Guide to Everything, there's the Boots of False Tracks, the Charlatan's Die, and Rope of Mending. Alright, thank you for listening to Religion in the Realms. If you're interested in keeping up with the release of future episodes, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and follow the podcast Twitter account at Realms Religion. 
These episodes are also uploaded to YouTube as well. Audio versions of the podcast can be found on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play Podcasts. If you wish to get in touch with me, my personal Twitter handle is at ShivsEmbrace. You can send an email to realmsreligion at gmail.com, all in lowercase. Next episode will be on Mistra, the neutral good goddess of magic. Her episode will be the start of a small series that detail Mistra and the gods that govern magic that we know are still present in the realms. So after Mistra, there will be episodes on Azuth and Savras respectively. Until next time, may Timora look kindly upon your dice rolls, Helm protect you, and Lothander light your path. Music for this episode, Eternal Terminal by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0.